play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Linda Perry. You know Linda Perry as the front woman for Four Non-Blondes, the band responsible for the 1992 hit that I loved so much that I put it on a mixtape for my mom. We're talking about the song, What's Up, which happens to be one of my favorite karaoke songs. And I thought since we don't have the rights to it, Maybe we could do a little karaoke now so people know what song we're talking about. Are you kidding? I love it. I love this song. Where do we start? Well, I said, should we start with a, and I wake in the morning and I step outside and I take a deep breath and I get real high and I scream from the top of my lungs, what's going on? Ugh. Such Beautiful. a good song. Yeah. It's a real belter. Uh, Linda Perry. And I said, hey, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. I said, hey. You will note that the words what's up never actually appear in the song. Ooh. That's a fact. It's a little piece of trivia. <laughs> it's a little piece of trivia. Uh, Linda Perry wrote that song because she is a songwriter. She was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2015. She founded two record labels, and she has composed and produced songs for so many artists. Christina Aguilera, Gwen Stefani, Pink, Weezer, Ziggy Marley, Adele, the Dixie Chicks, and the list goes on and on. I just want to say, as a producer, someone who's interested in behind the scenes, yeah. you may not know who Linda Perry is by her name, but she is one of the most successful, incredible songwriters and producers in the last like couple years. It's so exciting to have her on. Totally. And I feel like that's the best way to be famous because you can walk around and people aren't bugging you, yet you have the bank account of a famous person and also the glory of getting to do what you love, which is writing songs and making music. Now, Linda is not what you would call a food person. Look at it this way. I eat to survive. It's not for um, comfort. Her real indulgence, the thing that she does crave, is music. So I chatted with Oxford professor Charles Spence, who studies things like how the music you're listening to can actually accentuate the flavor of the food you're eating. We've been able to build up now kind of a repertoire of music that will accentuate sweetness, sourness, bitterness, that will bring out the creaminess of a chocolate. We're able to bring out the spiciness of a spicy mango salad simply by playing the appropriate uh, music. So this is the whole new world of, of sensploration, if you will. Spence will also tell us why people love to order tomato juice on airplanes. Don't ask about ginger ale. We don't get into that. But right now, my conversation with Linda Perry. You have written so many hit songs uh, for yourself and so many other pop artists. I know there's not an easy way to describe it, uh, and there's probably not a formula. But when you're writing a pop song and you're trying to make it a pop song as opposed to like indie rock or any other kind of music, is there any kind of formula? Like, how do you make a pop song that you know is going to be a hit? Um, I don't do that. Um, I, <laughs> I just write songs and... It has to be hit to me. Like, it, I, it has to touch me in some way. I don't really focus on what other people want. I can't do anything like that. That would be me chasing um, something, and I don't believe songs should be, uh, you know, it, you're closing off the opportunity that the song 
could have if you're already premeditating a hit. Like, I don't know how to do that. I just write for my emotions, and that's about it. Do you notice um, certain things that the songs have in common when they do become really popular, the the elements about them that people seem to really connect with? Um, the things with my songs that have been biggest hits, they're all completely different. Um, and um, I just really focus on if it's authentic and true to me, that's when I usually have a you know, successful song, but to me, some of my best songs have not been successful, have not been on the charts. But I, I'm a true believer that the song already exists and you're just tapping into it and it's kind of like pushing play. You know, when you're ready for the song, the song comes, you push play and there it is. What would your last meal be? Well, I'm vegan and I'm very weird about food because it depends on my mood of what I'll eat. But I usually, to be quite honest, I love um, green drinks. I drink juices all the time. People laugh at me and think I'm a weirdo. But as far as what I was going to eat for my last meal, if I were going to eat something, I would probably, let me look at it this way. I eat to survive. It's not for um, comfort. Yeah, I'm not one of those people. My wife, Sarah, loves food like she likes to explore you know being vegan it's very hard to find food that's actually really good because vegan um, restaurants tend to over garlic over season over salt so we go to places like there's a place called crossroads she loves it there but she's more she loves to explore the food me I just got if there's a grain and a vegetable I'm like happy with that I tell them don't put any salt on it don't put any oil and she laughs at me all the time. Interesting. So if I had to nail you down, though, and make you pick one last thing, though, that you were going to eat, something that's your favorite food, like if it's your birthday and you could choose anything, what would you want? Well, I love sweets. So I'd probably say, you know, I'll, I'll be okay with having a vegan donut over at from Baby Cakes. Um, I love that place. I think their their baker, baked goods are really great. So I'd probably go for something sweet because that is my weakness. What's your favorite kind of donut? Well, they do a maple salted donut that's really good. And they don't fry it. They bake them. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm telling you, I'm a weirdo. I don't like mm-hmm. getting involved with fried food. Like, I don't care if it's my last day on this planet. Like, I'll still probably eat broccoli, a grain, and probably just drink a big juice. Like, I don't, I wouldn't look at that as my thing that I'm going to focus on. I'm so surprised that people make fun of you because I'm assuming you live in L.A. Uh, Doesn't everybody drink green juice and eat super healthy? Yeah, but I'm, I'm really over the top. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty over the top. I was wondering if you were always that way, even when you were a kid, if food just was never important, if you would rather be playing or like hanging out with friends or playing music or whatever than eating. Well, my mom is Brazilian, and she made weird food. So it's like, I think, you know, and then we were, we didn't have money. So we lived a lot off of my mom trying to turn spam into some kind of Portuguese delicacy, you know. Mm, Yeah. Um, We drank powdered milk. Um, I've had tuna every single way it possibly could be made. So my first experiences of food, weren't that great because it was always like it was experiments you know that my mom was having when you don't have money you don't have the pleasure of having these 
wonderful meals. Again, you're only surviving. There's a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and American cheese sandwiches. When I got older, you know, I turned into a drug addict and I didn't eat a lot then because I was on drugs and I'd rather be on drugs and spend my money on drugs and drinking. And then when I got older after that, I did get money finally. And then I started experimenting with oh, I could go to fancy restaurants and I could eat all this. And I did that, but then it didn't feel good to my system. Then I decided I'm going to go completely vegan. Then I became macrobiotic, and now I'm just confused. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) This is your your eating history. What? Yeah, that's my eating history. So if food is not an indulgence, what is an indulgence in your life? What is something that's like, ooh, I look forward to this thing? I love music. I look forward to going into my studio anytime. Like, you know, right now we've been here all morning and I found a piano over in the room and I saw it and it's like I jones for it. Like, it's all I want to do. I love it in every way, even if I'm not playing it and I'm just listening to an artist playing me a song touching a microphone, being in any kind of creative environment is where my pleasure is. And number one is my son. I have an incredible, beautiful son that I can't get enough of, you know, and he is definitely filling so much of my heart and he helps me create music. So when it comes to music, I'm in it. It's just who I am. It's not something that I do. It's my constitution. What song or what band is your comfort food? I'm a big Pink Floyd fan. I love listening to Dark Side of the Moon. It's one of my favorite albums. And then, you know, Tapestry from Carol King. Um, Bowie, I can't get enough of. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty open about music. I love listening to classical music in the car. I don't listen to a lot of music. I only listen to it when I'm in the studio or sometimes in the car. But if I'm home... No music is played, really. I, I, I enjoy the silence as well. Linda mentioned her wife, Sarah. And the Sarah in question is Sarah Gilbert, who played Darlene Connor on Roseanne, who is now again playing Darlene Connor on Roseanne because that show is back. She's also the co-host and creator of the CBS talk show, The Talk. And back in 2014, Linda planned an elaborate proposal for Sarah. So she's going to tell us her sweet engagement story at the end of the episode. Okay, so as we mentioned earlier, Linda is not really into eating, something that is so hard to understand for 99.9% of us who are just trying not to think about eating all day and trying not to eat everything in sight. So I had to really nail her down on a food for her last meal. And you heard her. She basically like reluctantly picked vegan donuts. I just have to comment and say we have had so many vegans on the show. Yeah, you're right. Maybe the, thought about it. Maybe the cliche of kind of Hollywood people just eating super, super healthy and being vegans is true. Uh, And lucky for you, we already did a super fun donut episode when I had Top Chef winner Brooke Williamson on. So that episode was about a year ago. I think it was last March or April. You can learn about the history of the donut. And I brought a bunch of Seattle cops in the studio to eat donuts and talk about where the cops and donuts stereotype came from. Did you ever have any feelings about not wanting to be seen in a donut shop as a cop because of the stereotype? Yeah, when I first got hired, yeah, I remember an academy instructor telling us, hey, one thing about being a cop is you can't go around eating donuts, you know. Don't perpetuate the stereotype. When you're in the academy, everyone talks about not eating donuts. 
but you know I, I run the Explorer program and so one of the things that we do is routinely I get them donuts so we're already training our youth as officers to actually be prepared to have donuts in their career the next generation the next generation donut lovers so go back to the archives and check out that episode if you haven't already. But back to Linda Perry, her true love is music. So we'll talk about the relationship between music and food with Professor Charles Spence. He's an experimental psychologist at the University of Oxford. He spent 15 years researching how sounds can affect the enjoyability of food. He tells us what to listen to to make oysters taste most delicious, what to listen to if you want something spicy to taste even spicier, and how restaurants are using this knowledge to enhance your eating experience. So we're going to take a quick break, but take this moment to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Leave us a review. It is so, so helpful, and we're feeling the love, and we'll be right back. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Several years ago, I embarked on a very hard-hitting, important radio story. I wondered, why do so many people order tomato juice on airplanes? And not quite so much anywhere else. I interviewed several people for the story because, as I mentioned, hard-hitting story. I'm a responsible journalist. And one of the people I interviewed was Professor Charles Spence, head of the Crossmodal Research Laboratory, or as he would say, laboratory, at Oxford in the U.K., he spent the past 15 years researching the relationship between sound and taste. Now, some theorize that people order tomato juice on an airplane because it is the most filling beverage. So you don't get free food anymore. You sometimes get a little bit of a snack, but you might be hungry and the tomato juice will fill you up. But Charles has his own ideas. In a quarter of the population who fly... Uh, admit to the fact that, that while they order tomato juice or Bloody Mary in the air, they will never do it on the ground. So what's going on, uh, I think it's about the different atmosphere in the air, uh, which differs from what's on the ground in three ways. It's drier, uh, there's a lower cabin air pressure, but crucially the forgotten factor I think is the noise of the engines, which comes in at about 80 to 85 decibels. Um, and we predicted back in 2014, I bet that that, that has an impact uh, and scientists over in Cornell the next year were able to demonstrate that if you listen to airplane engine noise, it really does suppress your ability to taste sweetness in a dish, suppress your ability to taste saltiness in a dish, but actually enhances your ability to taste umami. And so again, it's the noise in this case that is impacting our taste. And if you know that, you can then start designing around it, either by giving out your passengers noise-cancelling headphones to block out the engine noise and so improve the taste of the food and thereafter 
think about matching the music sonically to the foods that you serve in the air. Which is something that some airlines have done when designing first-class entrees, because that's the only place you get food anymore. So British Airways went for an umami-rich menu. If you're not familiar with the fifth taste, umami, it's foods like tomatoes, parmesan, beef, mushrooms, seaweed, all foods that are high in umami and taste better in the sky at high altitudes. Which is a very good guide for you when you're at the airport and you're picking out snacks for yourself for the flight. Get something high in umami. Okay, so that's airplane food and drink. Now we're going to focus on music and sound, specifically what Charles Spence calls sonic seasoning. Talk about some of the experiments you've done and some of the research you've done uh, surrounding changing the taste of food using music and sound. So we've been working for about 15 years now uh, in the world of how sound affects taste and how sound was kind of the forgotten flavor sense. I think it was really an experiment we did in 2007. Uh, We had 150 people coming for an event. Uh, We decided to play the sounds of the sea and serve people oysters. Uh, or play uh, farmyard chicken noises instead, modern jazz or something else. Uh, Asked people to taste the oyster um, and rate how much they enjoyed it and how salty it was. And kind of the amazing result that we we couldn't really believe at first was that people enjoyed the oysters more when listening to the sound of the sea. And since then, we've been just kind of expanding one stage further into kind of the even more surprising effect of sound, particularly music on taste, because music has no obvious relationship with what we're tasting. And yet we find that when we bring people to the lab in Oxford, and if you get 10 people or 20, you find that there is consistency in the response that most people will associate sweet tasting foods, sweet smelling foods uh, with high pitched sounds, uh, bitter tasting foods like black coffee and dark chocolate go with, with low pitched sounds instead, sharp sounds for sour tastes. And so we've built up this kind of um, almost like a, a musical menu that people will associate with different tastes and flavors. We kind of pass those results then to um, to sound designers, sound artists, composers, and they will create soundscapes or bits of music. And then we do the kind of the killer experiment where we bring lots of people together, um, give them something to taste and change the music, play sweet music followed by sour music and see how their ratings of one and the same food or drink change. And time after time now, they do change. Uh, and we've been able to build up now kind of a repertoire of music, uh, musical styles that will accentuate sweetness, sourness, bitterness, that will bring out the creaminess of a chocolate. We're able to uh, bring out the spiciness of a spicy mango salad simply by playing the appropriate uh, music. So this is the whole new world of, of sense exploration, if you will. Uh, it doesn't work on everybody, but for those who it does, it's kind of like a surprising, uh, engaging, fun maybe almost mindful, uh, a way of approaching food and drink. So if you're eating something sweet and then you listen to the particular kind of music that's supposed to enhance Mm -hmm. it, does it make it sweeter? Does it make it more enjoyable? Uh, You have to start kind of with something that already has a bit of what you're interested in, a bit of sweetness, a bit of bitterness. So like, you know, black coffee with a little bit of sugar in it. Uh, If we play the sweet music, that ever so slightly sweetened coffee will, will will taste sweeter than it did before. And it's, I think it's really about accentuating something that's already there. If I gave you something that had a little bit less sugar in it than normal, maybe I could dial back up the sweetness uh, sonically. And that's kind of exactly the sort of thing that's going on now in places like the Jin Cafe in Vietnam, where they deliberately have reduced the sugar content of their cakes, their pastries, their drinks, uh, but make sure to play sweet music 24-7 
so that hopefully the customer's experience is of the same sweetness they always know and love, but it's delivered with a little bit less of the sugar on the tongue and a little bit more sweetness in the ear. Now, I think that the whole idea is fascinating, but the dessert restaurant works because they only serve sweet things. This would obviously be harder to do at restaurants where people are on different courses. Some people are eating sweet, some are eating spicy, some are eating sour. You couldn't curate music for an entire restaurant to suit the palate of everybody inside eating. But Charles says that restaurants can still curate their music towards the palate. It could be to bring out a taste, as in our kind of research on sonic seasoning. But it could also be to enhance the perceived ethnicity of a dish. That lasagna is going to taste, oh, so much more Italian, authentically Italian, with a bit of Pavarotti, a bit of opera in the background, uh, than it will with a bit of sitar music, say. Um, So you can use music to bring out authenticity in a dish. And I have other um, colleagues uh, and managers who have read the research um, showing that people will spend more with classical music than with top 40 music. And this is true in a wine shop. It's true in the supermarket. It's true in the restaurant. What is the biological slash psychological purpose of having sound connected <laughs> to taste? Is there one? Is this something we know? It, it could be um, just a sort of accidental uh, way, a uh, result of the way the mind is wired. But it could also be that there is there are sort of you know, strong biological drivers, evolutionary drivers for this. We do seem to be drawn to foods that make noise, the crispy, the crunchy, the crackly, the creamy, the carbonated, even the squeaky. Noisy foods don't directly deliver any benefit. They don't signal any nutrition. But what I suspect they're doing is in, in fruits and vegetables, a noisier apple, a louder carrot probably is a fresher carrot and hence preserves more of its nutrients. So I was asking Charles if he could use this method of playing music to make certain foods taste better on kids. Like if kids don't want to eat fruits and vegetables, if you're like, check it out. And then you just put this music on. They don't even know what's happening. And suddenly carrots taste sweeter and they want to eat their fruits and vegetables. I wonder if that's a possibility. I think anything you can do to get kids to eat vegetables is a good idea. At least worth a try. I wonder if it would work. I mean, he said this doesn't work on everyone. I do like the idea, though, of, you know, playing music that sounds like the sea for eating oysters or listening to Pavarotti and eating Italian. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, one last word from Linda Perry. Actually, like, we're going to let her say some paragraphs and stuff and a new way to stay in touch with the podcast. We'll see you on the other side of this break. If you like listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite, just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Linda Perry is married to the actor, talk show host, and producer Sarah Gilbert. And they have a really, really sweet proposal story. They got engaged while on a picnic with Sarah's two kids in tow. And I am so nosy and such a voyeur for love stories. I like to know how everybody met. I want to know your engagement story. I love these things. 
we got a bunch of food to have a picnic at the park. And, you know, there was a guy that was sitting at the park, like a street musician playing guitar. He said, let's, let's put our blanket here. We got music great. I tell the kids to go have him play their favorite songs. And I already told him to, I planted the guy. And I said, you know, learn these songs and the kids are going to come up to you and they didn't know and ask you to play certain songs and just be ready to play them. And Sarah kept on going, God, that is so crazy that this guy knows all these songs. And then I had T-shirts made, five shirts that said, will you marry me? Question mark. I had all the shirts in my backpack. Then I had planted a string section and a horn section in the park with people just sitting around. And one of uh, our favorite songs was um, Love Song by The Cure. And so I got on my knees, and then the band started playing the horns, the strings, and they started showing up, and Sarah was like, what the hell is going on? Mm. And I started pulling out the shirts, and one by one, it would be, will you marry me? And I had five shirts on, and then I had the kids wearing shirts that just said yes, (laughs) and she looked at them and looked at me, and then right behind her, she didn't know that the whole family crept up behind her, so her mom her sister, my mom, my sister, my family were all behind her. And then one of Sarah's favorite songs is um, a song called Missing You by John Waite from the 80s. And when she said yes, he came out with the guitar and played that song for her. And it was a pretty big, elaborate proposal. It was was pretty awesome. You gave me the chills. I can't believe that John Waite came out. That's amazing. What a beautiful day. Isn't that cool? She's yes. like, what the hell? Anyways, but it was really great. Yeah, you did it. Now Now that you have to try to top that some other time in your life. No, I don't think so. <laughs> That's going to only happen once. When I met Sarah, I knew I was going to marry her, and that opportunity was only going to happen one time. I had to go all out. And that was Linda Perry's last meal. Linda is currently collaborating with Intuit QuickBooks on a new campaign called Backing You, which helps independent artists be seen, heard, and celebrated. Thanks to Professor Charles Spence, you can check out his new book, Gastrophysics, The New Science of Eating. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me. Music, as always, by Prom Queen, except for that rendition of What's Up. That was by producer Aaron and me. And please don't be shy. Let's be friends. Uh, Earlier in the show, I promised a new way for us to keep in touch. I studied uh, media arts and communication in college, and I learned a term that I remember today. It's one of the few things I remember from college. I am a, quote, technological laggard. I am not ever the first on anything new and technological. Uh, So today, I opened an Instagram account. (gasps) Slow down. Welcome. Please follow us so we don't look like a bunch of losers. (laughs) Two followers. Uh, And this way, when Aaron and I go to New York City next week for the James Beard Awards, you can follow along on our journey. I have planned an all-day pizza eating tour through Brooklyn. We will be taking pictures so you can follow along. Uh, We are going to be eating a four-course meal at the James Beard Awards. Mm -hmm. This way you know what we ate. I'm Rachel Bell, and until next time, this is your last meal. 